Hey everyone, <laughs> it's Shite and Sound, we're Finn and Yufa, glad you're back. We're doing some stuff today, we're talking about some movies. First movie we're talking about, <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, by Billy Wilder, 1950, what a film. The second film we're talking about, Buddy Buddy, by Billy Wilder, 1981. Mm, that's my intro, that's my first of two intros of this episode, <laughs> Yufa's not doing an intro this time, because he, it's proven he cannot handle it. It is, okay. So, we- the, the, there's, there's a bunch of stuff we're going to be talking about in this episode. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Billy Wilder. We're going to be talking about author. as an author. We're going to be talking about the, the sort of like arc of his career, all that good stuff. We're going to talk about eras of film because obviously, like Sunset Boulevard. It's set in the fifties, but it's like looking back to actors from the like twenties and thirties. And then, of course, Buddy Buddy is actors who are big in the 50s and 60s, trying to transition into the late 70s and early 80s, Wilder himself trying to figure out how his style works in that sort of mode. And uh, and also both films are about suicide at certain points. Yeah. There's lots to cover. And that's our content warning. Yeah. We probably won't talk like a whole lot about suicide, but it's going to come up, it's gonna I come up think a few it times. Is, I, I think it is like the only bit of Buddy Buddy we're talking about. Oh, yeah. It okay. is like half the plot of Buddy Buddy, and the other half is how a murderer is great, cool, funny, gets away with it, and the end credits are literally over a freeze frame of him smoking a stogie on a Tahitian island. While planning to throw Jack Lemon into a volcano. <laughs> with a, I think unpaid worker fanning him like jesus <sighs> yeah i every intro i've attempted we're on this is like the seventh or eighth yeah, recording. Yeah. you know when people come out of like caves <laughs> their hair is shoulder length their beards wild and wary yep. that's what we look like inside i'll just get down to brass tack but riddle me this no 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 no, no. we're hanging up on you riddler <laughs> Why did I go quieter for him? You threw a phone down a well. <laughs> I'm just so worried talking about suicide. I'm the one who's on like three and a half hours sleep. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shite and Sound, the podcast where two comedians watch one of the masterpieces of world cinema and then follow it up with a critically reviled film that is similar in some way. Maybe they share themes, plot, actors or director. We want to see if counterpointing these two films can bring out some new information or insights. On this episode, we watched number 65 on the side and sound list, Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder's early career masterpiece about the fading glamour of the silent era film stars. Our second film this week was Buddy Buddy, Wilder's final film and an accidental treatise on the fading glamour of Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. So Billy Wilder, <laughs> one of like the all-time great writers and directors, started off in the 30s as a screenwriter, I believe, co-directed a film in 1939. He directed his first solo feature called The Major and the Minor, which starred Ginger Rogers and Cary Grant, maybe? One of those sorts of dudes. No, not, not Cary Grant. Yeah. It was like one of those types of guys. Of early work, the big thing to flag is Double Indemnity, which was his third film. Yeah. Which was huge it was his first noir noir thing that kind of sits in a lot of his work and sits a lot in this bfi list yeah. as, as we get through it double indemnity is one of the quintessential noirs got fred mcmurray as, as an insurance salesman who gets in over his head with a dangerous dame yeah written by or with raymond chandler 
got Edward G. Robinson and Barbara Stanwyck. It rules. Two important facts, I think, that inform Wilder's perspective that he was a Polish Jew who fled the Holocaust and tragically lost family members Mm. in it. First name is not William, it's Samuel. His brother's name is William, which is strange. His brother is Billy Wilder. So so it's like Elton John stealing his name from one of his bandmates. Yeah. His older brother was also a writer and director. First film's called The Bad Seed, 1934. is co-directed with a guy called Alexandre Esway. I think it's a French film. He went to Paris before, and he made some work in Paris, which did well, which got him to Hollywood. Yeah. Which is like kind of a similar route that, that that a lot of like European directors fleeing fascism did at the time. Like Fr- Fr- Fritz Lang, also in in 1933, he he got out of Germany after being asked by Joseph Goebbels to be the official Reich director. Fritz Lang was like, "I'll think about it," <laughs> and then just like left the country immediately. Ooh. And he went to Paris and did a couple of films in Paris, and then went, and then went to America. I think it's interesting talking about him in comparison with Howard Hawke. Howard Hawks was a silver spoon golden child who went to a prep school and in America and then on the weekends flew planes and stunt shows. Was so beloved at the Air Force Academy that he started training people right away. And then he was like, oh, I'll just try my hand at this movie thing and quickly found success, mm. largely through interpersonal connections. Whereas Wilder's success always kind of came on the back of his work. The era through which he was so dominant, in some ways, is kind of unassailable, no matter how much you may quibble with individual element from A Foreign Affair, Sunset Boulevard, Ace and Hole, Stalag 17, Seven Year Itch, Love in the Afternoon, Witness for the Persecution, Some Like a Hot, The Apartment, One, Two, Three, and Irma La Douche. The films in there that I've seen... Mm. There are reasons to like all of them. Yeah. Even if time may not have been kind to them. They're like someone making every film like it's his last. And then when you see his last film, Buddy Buddy, it is someone making a film like Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks never makes a film like it's his last. Like it's a big statement that he has to push. It's always just another one. Yeah. So much I think of the heartbreak of Buddy Buddy is that it feels like Wilder finally giving into that to making another film. His last film before Buddy Buddy was a film called Fedora, which came out three years earlier. That was him trying to do Sunset Boulevard again, but like updated for the 70s. Oh. It's about like a reporter who goes in search of a reclusive former film star and their lives get complicated and stuff. People end up getting hurt. That film didn't do well financially and it was barely reviewed. That was the last time he was like, like trying to, you know, like do something with, with a film. And this time he's like, yeah, I just want to hang out with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon for, for a few days. And make a movie that takes place entirely in one hotel room. Oh, and a sex clinic. Sure, the five minutes. Oh no, let, we'll get to Buddy Buddy. Let's talk about the highs before we hit oh, the and, lows. And also, and also, Fedora has William Holden in it as the main character again. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Sunset Boulevard. By the time he makes Sunset Boulevard, which is 1950, you know, he's in his 40s. He's quite a way into a career, and, and it is only with retrospect that we look at it, he has barely finished the first third of the films he's going to make. Yeah, this was eight years into his directing career. Major in the minor to Sunset Boulevard is eight years and eight films. Mm. Yeah. But it, this could easily be, Billy Wilder could have this initial run of films, which contains, like, The Lost Weekend, contains Double Indemnity, yeah. 
And he could happily be like, oh, well, this is, you know, I'm not going to do this forever. Like, you don't make Sunset Boulevard a film about how sometimes people stop working in Hollywood after about 10 years and not be like, ah, I wonder how this uh, will apply to me. Yeah. You know, I don't know how this is, where this is going to go. There is, for me, a sense uh, of finality to this film. It feels like we know it is not his final statement, and we know that, like, oh, I don't know, I think the apartment is better. Uh, yeah, but, like, this is also incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting seeing this film now, knowing that there's 20 more films in mm. his career, or whatever. feels like a mic drop at the same time, and I think a lot of its power is in its sense of, like, obviously it loves film. Mm. And obviously it loves filmmakers, it loves everyone involved, but it is also kind of fuck this place. Yeah, yeah, like, th- th- this is a film about how about how Hollywood ruins people. Yeah. It ruins, like, actors by chewing them up and, like, sucking out their youth and their beauty and their energy, and then spitting them out and telling them that, that they're not needed anymore. It, do- it does the same thing to writers, like, leeching their creativity out of them. Making them feel unable to make a statement. Yeah. And making anyone feel unable to make statement and the people who want to make statements are either naive or threateningly insane yeah. or eric von stroheim who i think kind of covers both fields <laughs> you know in yeah, this yeah yeah in real life i do not think he was naive <laughs> maybe that would be sweet if the guy who made greed was like oh and they're so in love <laughs> oh i wonder what happens in the next five hours <laughs> yeah the four hours that are missing are just like close-ups of birds with Eric von Stroheim intertitles being like, oh, look, at it, it's so free. Yeah, but, so but, nice. but, but because all the intertitles are done with, with like accents intact, it's all in Eric von Stroheim's accent. Which would sound like, oh, hello, I'm Eric von Stroheim. <laughs> okay. I was, I was just doing Stuart Wellington's Werner Herzog impression. <laughs> and right, uh, oh, hello, I'm a bad little boy. Did you see the incredible Werner Herzog skateboard magazine uh, yes, interview? The, just the best thing ever. If you've not seen it, there's an interview with Werner Herzog. With a skateboard magazine called Jenkum. The title of the interview is Flips Caraldo. <laughs> <laughs> it is interviewing Werner Herzog through the lens of skateboarding, in which he manages to just absolutely say brilliant things like, you... What is it? What you're skating on is the border between the sacred and the profane. (laughs) And you're like, but he's right. And he talks about how you shouldn't trust David Blaine, which is absolutely. I mean, David Blaine, he he stole one of Hugh Hefner's wives. Who can you trust? (laughs) Hate that the information is in my brain. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad thing to know. So uh, Sunset Boulevard or the Boulevard of Broken Dreams is I am the first to call it. I wrote a song about it, put it up on MySpace, and then... Someone stole it. So tell me the story of Sunset Boulevard. It opens on a road. What road? Sunset Boulevard. What the fuck? Ah! Just like how the movie Mulholland Drive. Yeah. The only connection oh. between the two. Yep. There are no more parallels to be drawn. There's some voiceover. A guy's like, hey, see? <laughs> okay. This is Sunset Boulevard. Eh? There's like a big old house. Uh, there's a dead guy in the pool. And there's a bunch of cars, there's a bunch of like police cars and coming he, up the street. He, and he stops short of going record scratch, freeze frame. Yeah, I bet you wonder how I got here. <laughs> but like, he is like, that's me. I'm pretty dead. What a, what, what a, what a schmuck. And so six months ago, we meet a, a struggling writer 
played by William Holden, yeah. who had, had really had like a lead part before this. This the film that like made him like made him a star. He, he's a struggling writer. He's had some success in the past, but he, but he like he hasn't been able to get a job recently. No one at Paramount is taking his calls anymore. He's like three months overdue on his rent. The Department of Finance is coming to like take away his car in like a last ditch attempt to get some work. He calls in his last favorite Paramount. He gets a meeting with a producer called Mr. Sheldrake, uh, which is a name that uh, Billy Wilder uh, returned to for executives. He says, hey, I've got this movie called Bases Loaded. It's about a rookie baseball player who gets in battle with some mobsters and they try to like make him throw the final game of the World Series. Producer is like, okay, get me the script coverage on this. Ends up for a woman called Miss Schaefer. Played by Nancy Olsen. I think this is my first exposure to her, but she's great. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, everyone in this fucking film is is great. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard is a great film. She was one like, why haven't I heard of this person before? Yeah. She she comes into a room and like, oh, here's a script you asked for. Wouldn't bother reading it, though. It's terrible. And, yeah. she, and she doesn't see that uh, William Holden playing a Joe, uh, Joe Gillis. Yeah. Is, is like, he's like standing in, in the like, other end of the room. Hey, the script is terrible. This guy used to be good, but he's all washed up now. Yeah, it's a real he's standing right behind me situation. Yeah, and then it's revealed that he is standing right behind her. And she's like, uh, whoopsie daisy. Uh, I still think your script's bad, though. <laughs> I've seen this film maybe two or three times. Well, three or four. Um, and, and it is that point I'm always like, oh, and of course she's going to be like, oh, no, I thought it was great. Yeah, but I'm like, yeah. Oh, no, no, she, the- she fucking stands her ground. Like, yeah, she, yeah. she goes like she goes a bit harder on him when she <laughs> yeah. when she sees that he's bare. And, and like later, their relationship kind of forms the subplot. They they end up working on something together. And like one of the big scenes is her being like, "Yeah, I read your other stuff." And he was like, "Oh, so you like my other stuff?" And he was like, "Not most of it, but there's this one." <laughs> there's, bit- there's like six pages of one of your scripts. I thought was pretty good. And they decide to adapt that into a screenplay. Mm. And, and despite her having uh, a fiance, a fiance. Fiance. She is affianced. Yeah. To an assistant director named Artie. Who's great. Yeah. Who every line is Who plays Artie? Jack Webb? Um mm. again, another person I don't know, but it is like there is a real um make him laugh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Donald O'Connor. Yeah, yeah. Donald O'Connor. Yeah, like, absolutely. Sp- a sprightly little pixie energy to him that that is thoroughly charming and also oh fuck of course jack webb he's the guy who created dragnet oh okay yeah um both the the the, the dan Aykroyd movie dan Aykroyd and tom hanks movie let's not forget <laughs> he has this, this conversation with with betty schaefer where she tells him that his script is bad then he's driving home from the lot feeling a bit sad across an intersection he sees the two men from the finance department trying to reclaim the very car he is in. This is why he needs to sell a script. He needs $300. Yeah, he sees the two finance guys in their car across an intersection, and he uh, speeds off as a short chase. Uh, w- 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 one of his tires blows out as he goes around a corner, and he like tries to like discreetly pull into the driveway of a house on Sunset Boulevard. Uh-oh. Ooh. Uh, and the finance guys drive right past him, don't even bother uh, looking down this driveway with a massive dust cloud at the front of it. <laughs> They're like fucking Daleks and how little they see the obvious. Yeah. This place looks abandoned. Buildings overgrown with ivy. All the doors to the garage are just like open. There's like, there's unraked leaves. The swimming pool is empty. and Except for the rats. He pulls the car into what he thinks is an abandoned garage. Yeah. And he walks up to the house just to sort of check it out from, from one of the upper windows. A strange voice calls out to him and says, he says, like, you're late. Yeah. Whilst taking you song, come up. He looks over to the door and he sees a scary looking German man 
uh, dressed like a butler opening the door. Yeah, it's Eric von Stroheim. Yeah, this is now the fourth Eric von Stroheim related movie we've done. Yeah, patron saint of this podcast. Yeah. Five if you can't greed twice. Eric von Stroheim continues to be uh, excellent. Yeah, he was very dismissive as his performance in this film. The character of Max, who is the butler of the house. Yeah, the woman who lives in the house is, is an actress called Norma Desmond. Yeah, played by Gloria Swanson in, in one of the top five acting performances of all time. Who She was a silent film actress in the 20s. Then she got too old for Hollywood. They kicked her out. She became like difficult to work with. They dumped her. And this guy, Max, who had been the director who discovered her and her first husband, came back to essentially like look after her because he... I think feels very guilty for his role in destroying this person. But he also loved her. Yes, yes. He is also very kind of naively attached to her in a beautifully uncomplicated way. Yeah, he's built the last 30 years of his life around trying to protect her from the harshness of the fact that no one cares about her. We meet Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond, who is this demented, like, Auton. It's all Doctor Who villains today. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm looking past you at my Doctor Who DVDs. Nope. She's not like a gremlin, but there is something other, like, if there was something in this film that was like, oh, she's slightly supernatural, like she was a fallen angel or risen devil, you would buy it. Yeah. Because there is something incredibly exterior about her interiority, like, she's so transparent and yet so clouded. Mm. There's a scene where they're watching her old film. She goes, Still wonderful, isn't it? And no dialogue. We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. Joe is sent upstairs by Max, Eric von Stroheim's character. Uh, he, he goes upstairs. He meets, he meets Norma. Uh, she is is dressed in like all black. She's got dark sunglasses on. She's dressed in like morning clothes. She leads into her room. And uh, starts telling her, we need the coffin to be this size, we want this sort of lining on it, we want it to be red, with like white satin on the inside, where we're wondering who's died. Pull, she pulls back a blanket over, over dead body, a weird looking hand falls out, it's a chimp. <laughs> a chimp died. This is the point where Billy Wilder's claims that this film was not a comedy fall apart. <laughs> it is many things, but it is also hilarious. Yeah. The reason you can't really call Wilder a journeyman, that while he worked in many modes... His comedy and his voice uh, and the particular rat-a-tat-tat and that particular sense of horrific reveal turning to comedy. Buddy Buddy, he reuses the gag from the apartment where it sounds like someone has shot themselves, but they've just opened champagne. Yeah. And so this, the the body is actually a chimp and she's bereaved over this chimp. And then like the next five minutes or so of the film him observing them going through funeral rites for a chimp. Yeah. So dignified. The narration is judging them. Yeah. His narration from the grave. Ah, check out. Uh, che- che- caring for a uh, chimp that, as if that, he was a person. That that night I saw those two freaks go out into the garden with their chimp coffin and they buried him. Like, like it was a child. <laughs> and there's just a great shot of, of Eric von Stroheim like stepping down into a grave and like, and being part of a chimp coffin. Yeah. Von Stroheim and Swanson play it absolutely straight yeah. to the point where you start disagreeing with the narration. I think this is deliberate, but like you were like, no, look how upset they are. Yeah. Like, sure, it's a tr- chimp and that's funny. 
but also chimps are cool. And this is their life. They're not hurting anyone. I mean, they didn't kill the chimp. The chimp died of old age. When we do see like one shot of a chimp's face, it looks rough. Yeah. This is a chimp that was ready to die. <laughs> It is. I don't understand why that image of a chimp isn't as, like, mimetic as, uh, like, it has the same energy as turning the rocking chair around to reveal dead Mrs. Bates in Psycho. <laughs> yeah. The, the sense of the, this. The, yeah, just, like, pulling back the sheet to reveal the chimp face. <laughs> yeah, this hollow automaton. Uh, she takes off her sunglasses and he recognizes her and goes, You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. And she says, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. And uh-huh. it is like hysterical. It is yeah. at a hundred percent. Like it, it, it is hysterical in both senses of the word. The greatest tragedy of this film is that it did not revitalize Swanson's career. She got a bunch of offers afterwards, but they were all essentially to play this role right. again. Yeah. yeah. And it seems so obvious to me, and I feel like it's obvious at the time, that this is not, A, this is not a self-pitying role. This is not someone being like, why did you forget me? It is someone doing like a performance of this being that that possesses her. And like the sheer feeling of it is so real. It's so easy to talk about in abstract terms, to to call her an auton, right? Mm. But like the reason it works, and thusly I think the reason the film works, is because you buy it. It is obviously over the top, but it feels like a person going over the top, demented yeah. into these circumstances. As much as I love it, it's not the Twilight Zone episode where a silent movie actress ends up stepping into her films that she's been watching over and over again. That Yeah, it was made 10 years after this. It did. Twilight Zone just did do a Sunset Boulevard ripoff. Because you don't buy that. It's just someone being crazy. Yeah, And this is about a tragically hurt person. And that is kind of entirely encapsulated in the fact that we meet her mourning a chimp and are like, lol, check it. And then she's like, the picture's got small, check out the ego. And then we see her mourn that chimp and it feels real. And you're like, oh shit, I care about you, you (laughs) maniac. Which is like the feeling William Holden's character starts to have about her. Yeah, She shows him that she's working on a script. She's been writing the script for, like, years, maybe, maybe decades. It is it's just all piles of, of like, like parchment. <laughs> yeah. If you said it was like, these are documents I found in a tomb, you'd believe her. Yeah. She's got the script, which is her interpretation of the biblical story of Salome. Yeah. And she's been writing the script for years as, like, her... N- not not her comeback vehicle, because she doesn't believe in the term comeback. No, her return. Her, her return. Yeah, like Twin Peaks, the return. Yep, exactly. That is almost definitely a part of what that title Maybe. is referencing. Like, but like, if you asked David Lynch, he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell you. Oh, yeah, yeah, but like, literally, within Twin Peaks, the return, someone watches a scene from Sunset Boulevard and regains all their memories. <laughs> she shows him the script uh, after he tells her that he's a screenwriter. She's like, oh, do you like to look at my script? And he's like, yeah, I'll look at this fucking crazy person's script. This is going to be hilarious. Yeah. And he, he reads it over, and it's hundreds of pages. Barely coherent is the idea you get, right? Yeah. Once um, a, a flatmate I had, who I, I already did not like, asked me to read the screenplay he was working on for a sitcom. And I presume it was a similar experience, but I don't think in her vision of Salome there wasn't an Asian character, Asian flatmate. <laughs> 
who in this 12 page script for a full episode of a sitcom had phonetically spelled out dialogue like party time what is party time like after all he seems to kind of get like bored of it he just he just wants to get home norman desmond's like oh won't you stay and finish the script and he's like well i'll I'll take over no i cannot i cannot i cannot let it leave the premises i've got a guest house you could stay in and he like acts like he can't do it but he's doing all this narration about like yeah, I was playing her like a fiddle. <laughs> yeah, he's a real dick. He agrees to like stay in her guest house and finish reading her script and, and like help edit her, her script for her. When he's in a guest house at night, he looks out the window and he sees them burying the chimp in the yard. Yeah. He wakes up the next morning to find that Max has gone to his apartment and uh, taken uh, every single one of his belongings and put them in the guest house. Yeah. Uh, he freaks out about that for a while. Norma Desmond basically convinces him like, no, you're going to live here. And work on the script with me. This is the point where we learn she's got loads of money. She's got like oil field. Yeah. She owns like a couple blocks of apartments in downtown Los Angeles. Whoever was in charge of her finances back in the 20s did a really good job for her. Yeah. So kind of like a total way. It's like, I've paid all your debts. You don't need that place. Even though mm. I've paid your three months back rent, you know, you're just going to stay here with me. And he's like, I would rather work home. And she goes like, well, how much do you want this job? And it is this interesting thing because it's so soon after him being like, I'm playing you. Yeah. <laughs> she immediately is just like all in on him and asserts control. He sees her as like, like mentally feeble older woman who wants my help and I can bilk her. And then immediately she's like, I have too much money to be built. Yeah. I, I can just do whatever I want whenever I want it. So much of the narrative arc of this film through revelations about the depth of her desperation yeah so like revelations about how she operates our character reveals as well as plot reveals she gets him a coat and tails uh so they can go to her big new year's eve party together and no one shows up and as an audience member you're like oh no one shows up because no one cares about her does she know this and then he's like is anyone who's going to come and she goes like oh no we are the only two guests. It's just the two of us. Who else would you want to be with? Yeah, and so then he's like, okay, she's in love with me now. But, like, she knows there is no one else. It's yeah, not yeah. like that scene could very easily, with the film leading up to that point, yeah. the end of that scene could also be her going like, what, no, there are hundreds of people here. Yeah, or like, oh, but no one came to my party. Yeah. Do they, do they not love me anymore? And they dance, and she clings close to him, desperately wishing to be adored, but through someone she can control. Yeah. Her, her mouth is twisted into this, like, snarl. She is 100% protecting herself. She's, like, covered herself in a shell that is also absolutely transparent, and it is just compelling as shit. <laughs> Fuck. There's like a full string quartet as well. There's a string quartet with an accordionist. <laughs> of course, I mean. Yeah. Like, first of all, we're going to do some Vivaldi, and after it's got Weird Al coming in. Yeah, no, he's the reason. Do a polka medley. The reason he's called Weird Al is that he doesn't have a string quartet <laughs> with him. I want to be clear this is a pro Weird Al podcast. Yeah. He's genuinely incredible. And he's been doing a great job of that specific thing for like 40 years now. And she gives him a gold cigarette case. He turns it down because he, he feels like he's emasculated by like all the gifts that she's giving him. Yeah. And it feels like he's being bought. So then she gives the speech about like, no, I've got so much money. 
I, I don't I don't care if you don't want this. I need this. I just, I just kind of need to spend money. It is so interesting to me, and I love that this film, like very much, m- repeatedly makes the point that like he is fine with the arrangement when she doesn't know about it. Yes, yeah. Like he's happy to be a gigolo if it's secret, but if she knows, if she has the power over him, like him being emasculated by the script notes, by the oh, reader, right, right. By Betty Schaefer, yeah, yeah, yeah. that he just subconsciously throughout has to control and dominate. Mm. People become threats to him when they have more information than him. Nancy, Nancy Olsen was in Flubber, the yep. Robin Williams movie. Do you know why she was in Flubber? Because she's in The Absent-Minded Professor and Son of Flubber, the two films that Flubber is a remake of. Okay. At a, at a certain point... Uh, and they're like working together on on writing the script. He is like moved from a guest house in, into the house proper. There's leaks in the guest house. Yeah, he's put into like a a one of one of the eight master bedrooms in yeah. this in this mansion. The quote husband's room. This is the room all of her previous husbands uh uh uh, uh, uh uses the bedroom. Matt goes him around, mm. uh, and, and you get some allusions to that that Matt. Has some history in this play, yeah, which which is later confirmed as we've discussed. In this scene, Joe also notices that uh, that there are no locks on any of the doors in the house, and he he asks why that why that is, and Max tells him it is because uh, Norma is prone to melancholy and has uh, tried to kill herself several times, and so there can't be any locks on any of the doors, and so all the doors are pairs of eyes staring. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's no there's no handles on any of the doors either. Yeah. And this film at points feels like it's about ten percent shots of lights going on and off through holes in lock. And yeah, it raises the spectre. And after the New Year's Eve party, she gives him the cigarette case, which says "crazy about the boy," and he's like, "Well, mm. it's me saying I'm in love with you." And he essentially says, "I'm not in love with you." Yeah. And she storms off upstairs, feeling thoroughly emasculated. William Holden runs off. To a party of, and like he lists all the like the little people in Hollywood, yeah. including like a horrific reference, like the young actresses that believe all the promises of the casting guys. And I'm yeah. like, Ugh. where he meets up with Betty and Artie, and this is where we get Major Artie Green Patter. Uh, yeah. It's just joy. It's just it is like you get 40s and 50s Patter comedy of people just essentially saying like a hundred words a minute and. Every other sentence is an incredible joke, and it just goes down so smooth. And you're like, "Oh, I get why it's great to watch Gilmore Girls." <laughs> you know, like uh, I get why Preston Sturgis was an incredibly powerful man because yeah. it's so hard. But when it lands, it feels so effortless. Yeah, but yeah, he goes from this big empty place to this place. This, this like small cramped apartment, yeah, which is like filled with dozens of people, and everyone's having a great time there. There are two women who are on the phone and they're just laughing. Literally all they do is like, they're next to the phone. Uh, they hold like, the phone to theirs and they just start laughing hysterically and they put it down. And, like, <laughs> and are they calling people? Are who they on tell? a call? Yeah. And it is like, that sounds like I'm describing a deleted scene from Mother. <laughs> like, it is like the magic of Wilder is that I'm like, obviously those two ladies, they're having such a great time. <laughs> yeah. Just enjoying their New Year's Eve. So he goes to his party at, at his friend Artie's place. Artie's an assistant director. Yeah. And when he gets there, Artie's like, hey, I want you to meet my girl. And it's Betty. And he goes, whoa, what? Look, we all know this happens. His eyes pop out of his head. <laughs> yeah. 
His ears start shooting steam out. His face goes red. Yeah. He... His, his head just turns into like a train whistle. <laughs> People think that the mask was the first to do that with a human. But no, it was <laughs> it was Sunset Boulevard. Um, and, be- and before that, it was uh, Antigone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm trying to remember the name of the play and everything I've searched has revealed porn. Well, uh, Oedipus. Oh. <laughs> do you just look, you just look like a mum fucking? <laughs> Greek mum sex play. <laughs> Hope you're on private browsing. I'm not. Ugh. And now I have to click on this link to oh, free sex videos. Who would be right mind could pass that up? <laughs> There's no more touching a moment in the classical theatre than when, you know, Oedipus not knowing his mother is his mother. Yep. First sees her and... His heart starts beating outside of his chest, exploding out of him. His head turns into a train whistle, and he yells, Homna, Homna, Homna. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and then it's it... truly a life-changing experience. Yeah. Anyway, she's like, I found six pages. I think they're good. They're about a teacher. Let's go talk shop. And Artie, for like the third or fourth time in the scene, was like, Hey, don't steal my girl! <laughs> Don't, no. And he's like, I'm not gonna steal your girl. No, 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 no. No girl stealing. Not for me. Oh, no, no. No attraction between me and your girl. And he's like, but don't steal her. He goes, never. We've actually got sort of an adversarial relationship at the moment. (laughs) And so they talk about his good idea and, and she's like, they're interested. We should work it into a script. Yeah, and then they almost immediately uh, try and start Things making Things get out. tense between them. They start quoting something, and I'm not sure what it is, uh, while, like, staring at each other's bare necks. And it is just the... the it is, I don't think I've ever really thought about this before, but it just it is like a scene which is like, oh, yeah, that's really what when you're about to kiss someone is like. But, like, in a way that feels really crystalline and mm. really beautiful. You you see the connection that they have, and it is like that is the bit that Lucy's needed, yeah, but did not have. But then they get then they get interrupted by the two women who are on the phone. He he goes and calls Max, and like, hey Max, you know my stuff, and send it over to blah 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 Street. And Max says, no, I can't do anything right now. I've got important stuff to deal with. Norm, Norma tried to kill herself again. Yeah, Joe calls like he runs out of the party. He he runs back to Sunset Boulevard. He he sees Max at the door. There's a very good moment where like, he he's he's talking to Max at the door, and Max like tells him to like go upstairs and see her. And he he's about to start like running up the stairs, and Max kind of like stops him. He's like, we don't want to let the band know there's anything going on. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The band must not know. Yeah, I mean he he goes upstairs and and uh, uh, tries to comfort Norma. She she's lying in bed like she is linen interred. Her arms in these bright white bandages like a frank miller drawing and yeah. there are all these every reverse shot on joe has the bandages in the foreground and you just see the guilt of this and she's like oh no you don't love me no one could love me i'm forgotten and you see the real drama behind her front is kind of as melodramatic like her self-hatred uh, is as operatic as her self-love yeah this scene could so easily be alienating and make you pity the selfish, manipulative character. Because the way she plays it, she's still toying with him. She kind of still has the power. Yeah. 
Gloria Swanson plays this moment as someone who absolutely wanted to die and also someone who only did it to get the man to come back. Um, and, and those things exist so complexly within such a violent and big performance and like big in a good way. Yeah. It's, oh, it's just really striking and is, fuck, she's so good. Yeah. I, I don't know a reason why if you are interested enough in film to listen to a podcast like this about film, why you would not watch Sunset Boulevard. Because it's the best kind of film, according to some people, a film about, about film. film. I kind of feel somewhat inarguably one of the best performances mm. of all time. There were people at the time who called it pretentious or overdone. And I was like, no, you have to understand, like, the whole point of this film is that the glamour of Hollywood is so great that you burn so bright. They finish up the script. She gets star charts done so that it can be taken to Cecil B. DeMille on the right day. Yeah, so, so then they can all be Cecil B. Demented. <laughs> and she starts getting calls from Paramount. And from, she, from Gordon Cole. From Gordon Cole. You know, David Lynch calling into the film and being like, I had another Monica Bellucci dream. <laughs> And she's all like, oh, of course, they want to do the film. Uh, let's go in. But they, they, they take her, like, her giant old Italian car from the 30s. Yeah. So she, she has, like, a very specific type of car, which in the 20s was associated with silent film stars. Like, if, if you were a rich person in Hollywood, you had this mm. specific sort of car. And she's held on to it, and it's one of her, like, last links to her former glory. Yeah. Yeah, so they drive this, um, like, this giant fancy Italian car. And, like, to delay her a bit. Cecil B. DeMille has her set, and it's actually Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. Earlier, she was playing cards with Buster Keaton, and it yeah. just is Buster Keaton. And I believe the other two people playing are also silent film stars. There's one of the like pages of credits in the opening credits uh, is like, and, and it's like Buster Keaton and like four other people, and those are all famous people from the past who are, who are playing themselves. Anna Q. Nilsson and H.B. Yeah. Warner are the two other bridge players who yeah. are playing cards. Uh, later on, near the end of the film, Hedda Hopper is in, is in the film. Yeah, who was like incredibly like powerful tabloid reporter. Yeah, well, she was a gossip columnist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. She was inspiration for, for Tilda Swinton's characters in Hail Caesar. Gets her to sit in her chair and say, "Watch, watch how it's done." And one of the guys up in the lighting grid recognizes her and turns one of these big 10k lights, an artificial sun, on her. And it's so bright. She is like an astral being bathed in light, and it and it fills her. And they're going, it's like she gets like a power up. I mean, like if everyone in the room yeah. starts being like, "It's Norma Desmond, it's Norma Desmond," and, and they'll run over and like and and like more people start talking to her, and they want autographs, and and it throws her into to ecstasy. Yeah, and I I kind of think the whole point of the performance is that like when your success feels like that, mm. the sun is on you, and you're bright, and the world has to love you yeah of course you would go you have to go as mad as she goes elsewhere mad is a pejorative term so i think thinking it's hammy or too big misses the fact that if it was any smaller it wouldn't make sense like yeah. it has to be about the high is so great that the crash doesn't just destroy you it explodes you what a film <laughs> but yeah what does cecil b demille learn she she talks to to she talks to Cecil B. DeMille and says like I know you want my script otherwise you wouldn't have had your assistant Gordon Cole call me and he's yeah. like Gordon Cole and we've already established at this point that people are like oh she's here to talk and he's like oh it'll be about that terrible script she said yeah me. yeah he he talks to his assistant like 
find out who fuck Gordon Cole is. Yeah. Get him on the phone with me. Uh, and then it cuts like outside where there's, where, where Joe and Max are. They're standing with the car. Joe sees, uh, sees, sees, sees Betty up on, up in one of the like, uh, studio, like, uh, yeah. uh, like offices. And um, Max is just like, above the Star Trek stages. There at stage eighteen, which was the Star Trek stage. Yeah, and and, and Max has just been describing how like this whole row of offices, the entire row used to be her dressing room, mm-hmm. and that row above it that that used to be that used to be like my dressing room. Yeah, he sees Betty walking along there. He he leaves Max to go and talk to her. They they have a conversation about the script down back in back in the lot. Uh, some 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 uh, some like crew guys come up to Max and they they start talking to him about the car. And we, That's the funny car, they say. Yeah. It's it's like in that other movie we watched, I can't remember which one, where someone describes something as fun. Oh, there's, oh, from a, a, a day in the country, where someone's like, oh, there's those funny boats. <laughs> and, they were just, and they were just normal fucking boats. But this is a funny car. It, it's at least an interesting car. It has a telephone you can call the chauffeur with, like that. Funny. And so Max quickly works out. They weren't calling Norma for her script. They were calling her because they want to rent her. They want to like rent her old car because they're making a movie set in between. They're talking upstairs. Um, the two writers. Yeah. Joe and come and on. Betty. Why? Why do I keep forgetting that name? Just, just remember, it's one of Naomi Watts's names from from Mulholland Drive. What another? Another connection so between there Sunset are, Boulevard and Mulholland Drive? You're saying there are two connections. <laughs> oh. yep. the, the only connections are uh, uh, some people have similar names and, and there is a road involved in both of them. Uh, this is the key point where it's like, no, you're going to fucking write it. You've got, had done all this thinking. And she's like, I can't. I need your help. And you're like, ah, I don't like this. And he goes like, okay, here's the pitch. It's these two teachers. So the pitch currently is that it's a day teacher and a night teacher and they fall in love and he's like and they live in the same room it's cheaper and but they've never met but they sleep in the same bed just one during the day and one at night and, and you can't tell whether that's a good or bad pitch but yeah. she loves it it goes it goes it goes back inside to 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 Cecil B. DeMille and Norma Desmond talking again. And, and, and Cecil and, B. DeMille is playing all the language games of trying to like, yeah, well, it'd be great to work together again someday, get the odd team back together and just say, yes, it'll be the return. And you can just yeah feel <laughs> her not picking up what he is clearly laying yeah, down. Yeah, at the beginning of the scene, when he first sees her, he's like, oh, she's having a terrible script. His assistant is like, oh, do you want me to like get rid of her? I could like, we could like brush her off. Yeah. And, and he's like, no, like, do you... Do you know who? Do you know who Norma Desmond is? Mm. And then he starts like kind of telling the story about like she was like, this incredible actress. She was she was massive, and then Hollywood just, just fucking got rid of her and and it destroyed her. And the whole thing is like Cecil B. DeMille was like the last big director that she worked with. They made a lot of films together, and so he also sort of feels responsible for like how her career has gone. He he feels very protective of her, and he 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 doesn't want to just like brush her off and be rude to her. Because he knows how much she's hurting. For a film that is in many ways really cartoonish, every interaction is layered with complexity and yeah. that clearly he has no interest in making this film. But when he's like, oh, we should work together one day, like he really thinks that, yeah. you know? It's not bullshit. The affection is real. Yeah. He's not just paying due diligence and he's not just saying these things to appear good or to to pay penance to someone he cares about. Yeah, and and Cecil B. DeMille does, like, a really fucking good acting job in this scene. Yeah, he got paid, like, $20,000 in a new car for his (laughs) role in this film, which is a max of a day. Yeah. 99 out of 100 
passes on this film would be that like Cecil B. DeMille should be like, nah, she's old hat, she's gone, let's waste her because yeah. it it w- it will emphasize the situation more if the world doesn't care about her. Yeah. But it, it does it, just not as much as she thinks it does is a much more nuanced and and thusly like the reason this film I find this film in many ways very painful to watch. Mm. Mainly because like part of me has, I don't know why, but like a Pavlovian response of pain and sadness to parties that people don't show up to. Like it, it fucks me up. Like her pain is real. You know, it is not. She would still be cared about in yeah. the industry. She wouldn't just be forgotten and nothing. People like, and like when Cecil B. DeMille's like, oh, great, the team back together again, that'll be the day. And she's like, great. And she gets in the car and is like, we're doing it straight away. Oh, it's the next film. We're going to be huge. Yeah. B. DeMille is like, tell Gordon Cole we're not getting her damn car yeah. to save her the the grief, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like he, he basically says like, we, like, we have to like leave her alone. Yeah, we've already done enough damage to her. There's also another really good moment in, in the scene that I loved, where when he's having that conversation with his assistant, and his assistant's like, "Norma Desmond, isn't she, isn't she a million years old?" Huh? Mm. And then Cecil B. DeMille's like, "What the hell that makes me thin?" So much of the tragedy in the film is that, like, she's not old. They call her middle aged, and that's not just flattering the actress. She's supposed to be like fifty, yeah, in this, and like, obviously, there's a real sense uh, of a vanity to the character, mm. but it's not like it is like baby Jane is about someone who time has wrecked and turned yeah. into a monster. And she is, you know, she's who could never work again because she's gray gardens. Yeah. Whereas in this, like there, there are bits when it's like, uh, William Holden narrates and is like, when I would get sad or distant, she'd put on shows for me. And so you see her do like Charlie Chaplin routines and they're like, good. Like she's not like it's possible, you know, and that makes. <laughs> but like, it but all like the those are also the moments where it gets the most whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, where, 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 where she's like, where, yeah, where she's dressed up as a like little tramp, and she's she's doing like cane shenanigans and stuff. But yeah, but the difference is is that hers is like her impression of Charlie Chaplin is quite good, like, <laughs> yeah. and she's quite entertaining, and the bits of her acting that we see are good. Yeah, it's not like she's singing. Like, daddy's up in heaven for the 15th fucking time. <laughs> uh, feeding his sister a bird. Yeah. Oh. What, a film. what a film. Another good but very different film. Yeah. There you go. Home she is now, like, convinced that, that she's going to be starting work on on the, on the on this new Salome picture any day. Yeah. Uh, she stu- there, there's a montage of the new diet and a quack health science regimen that she's on. Yeah, which is just an incredible like, it, montage it, of her in, like, seemingly different bondage arrangements yeah it, it, it turns into like like i'm what what, what i'm assuming are, are like cut scenes from uh from like from from when uh from when jonathan price's mother is getting plastic surgery in brazil because of her new uh because of her new regimen she is going to bed at nine o'clock every night and so every night uh joe uh leaves uh after she's gone to bed and he goes to uh he goes to the studio yeah and he sits with Betty, and they work on their script together. When they hit a story problem, they walk through the back lot and and, 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 and in, a, in a scene which David Lynch, uh, I was listening to a thing yesterday yeah. about Mulholland Drive, and at one point, uh, use a quote from 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 David Lynch talking about this scene where he's like, "I, I don't know if people ever did, you know, have take romantic walks through a back lot tonight, but they should do it. Yeah, <laughs> like that should be happening every day." And it is. This scene that is all about the artifice that they are standing 
a, a city street that's made of flats and yeah. forced perspective. Betty is talking how she she prefers it to 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 a real city street, and she wanted to be an actress, but they didn't like her nose. Then she fixed her nose, and they didn't like her acting. <laughs> Done charmingly, but also is like like a great furious statement about how actors are treated. Yeah, which is something that like like this in the apartment especially are incredible at being furious at at at, at like. At American culture and specifically how it treats women, but also doing it in a way where it's like, oh, it's just this is just another scene of a movie. It, it, it doesn't feel like Wilder is is shouting at you. If you watch the apartment, that's a movie about like workplace sexual harassment and other stuff, and uh, like and like and lots of other stuff. It's a movie from 1960 that is like for a lot of it concerned with with like Im- with like imbalanced power dynamics and work in workplace sexual relationships, and 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 a one best picture. <laughs> And it's hilarious and heartwarming. Yeah. Like this film is as well. And so, yeah, you get this incredibly romantic scene of these two people kind of talking about the tragedy of their lives and this unspoken connection. Yeah. That's and come they're, between like, them. Getting, like, clo- they're getting like closer and closer together. But she's engaged to Artie now. And yeah. uh, Artie's off in Arizona. He's he's working on a film. Yeah. There's one of those gr- like, like great old like romance lines. Which you're like, oh, someone's doing it these days. I don't know, but like, it works in a movie from 1950 where they're staying super close, they're like about to kiss, and then Joe like grabs her by the shoulders and kind of like takes her back a step and says, you know, if if if, if, if we want to ever finish writing the script, you got to stay two feet away from me at all times. Yeah, and if I get any closer, you got you got to promise to take off your shoe and hit me in the head with it. <laughs> Which uh, she's wearing high heels, yeah. that would kill him. Yep, uh, like yeah, take off his shoe, hit him right in the fontanelle. <laughs> Off switch, kill him instantly. Yep. Horrifying. In primary school, once me, me and my friends were all hanging out on the field, but they, they were hanging out at the other end of the field, and I wanted to get their attention, so I picked up a rock and I threw it at them. And I hit one of my friends, like in, in, in the, I hit him in the temple, like yep. right on the side of the head, and then this guy started crying. And but but I not mean, but, understandably not, okay, but like, so. not not out of pain. He was he he started crying, and he said. Finn, that's the 24-hour spot. If you hit someone there, they die in 24 hours. <laughs> and all my friends got mad at me because I'd murdered our friend. And and I was like, no, what are you... <laughs> Guys, I don't think that's true. And they're like, no, Finn, that's definitely true. I was like, okay, if, if Monty's at school tomorrow, do you promise to not be mad at me anymore? <laughs> and then he came to school the next day. No, 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 he, he was, died. He was You're fine. Lying. He was fine. He was fine. <laughs> and no one can prove otherwise. <laughs> the thing I should tell you is that when Finn tells this story in person, the end is different, and he starts it with, do you want to hear about the first person I killed for it? They call me the 24-button murderer. This scene of them in this false but real street. Talking about her false but real nose. Yeah, be, being so close and so far apart, yeah. the chemistry between them being so real yeah. is is kind of the er-romantic scene from this era. For me, it is startling and, and and touching and wonderful. And like, I get why there are people who just love watching romantic films from this era. Yeah, because it and because it is not. It's not about glamour. It is about what is human connection in an artificial world. Mm. Uh, and it is like discussing your artificiality and, and finding the truth in it. And yeah. I, uh, oh man, it's. It's so good. Anyway, he gets home. Max is there and is like, I know what you've been doing, but I won't tell her. She cannot know. 
they have a bit of an argument and this is when he's like i have to protect her i was her first director and remembering eric von stroheim directed gloria swanson and in films in the 20s right you got to save the twist but i wish this character had just been eric von stroheim yeah, you know? yeah. i was her first husband i was her first director and now i i was the forefront of the brigade of men that ruined her mm. and now i have to protect so you can do whatever you want you just can't let her know she finds the script yes. that they're working on which is called untitled love story about some teachers one who works at day one who works at night by joe gillis and betty Schaefer. open brackets we're in love close brackets <laughs> yeah she is heartbroken she decides to call up Betty and try and like that, that guy joe that you're with you don't know about him he's he's secretly bad <laughs> And then Joe walks in on normal while she's doing this. He takes the phone out of her hand. Hey, Betty, it's uh, it's me. Uh, you should probably come over here so we, can, so we can sort all this out. And so she comes over and he does a big show of explaining precisely the situation of how he is essentially a gigolo. And Betty is immediately struck by how immediately starts grieving for their relationship and kind of for his soul. Yeah. And it's a really interesting moment. And I think a thing Billy Wilder can almost do, because you get, like, she at this point literally does not have enough information to know how sad this is. Yeah. But Billy Wilder understands that we have seen the film. We know how sad this is and how how bleak a person he has become by both leaning into and attempting to control this power. It is, like, the problem isn't what Norma is doing. It is how Joe is within it, Yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, very, very clearly. Betty is upset at, at Joe and she's upset at Joe because she sees the house and so kind of sees the rest of the film. She knows what we know. She's like, I can't look at you. Well, how about you look at the exit then? And he guides her to the exit. She leaves and it's, mm. uh, it's terrible. It is terrible because it is inevitable. Yeah. And she is expressing the sadness that you feel. Ah, oh, it's good. How good is this film? Joe goes back upstairs, and Norma is like, "Oh, you, you've 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 chosen me. You 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 got, you got rid of her. You 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 love me. You don't love her. Great." Yeah. But now he is like so kind of disgusted with himself and with her that yeah. he starts packing his bags and he's going to leave. He tells her, "This comeback, that film is not going to be made. Yeah. There is no comeback." Max is one sending the fan letters to you. You have been forgotten. He has a gun. She friends to she friends to kill herself. And he's like, I, I don't care, I'm leaving. And he, he, he walks down the stairs, he walks out of the house, she follows after him. He walks out into the, uh, into the sort of front yard. Yeah. She shoots him. Yeah. He stumbles towards the pool, she shoots him again. Yeah. He turns around, she shoots him again, and he falls into the pool. Then it cuts to, like, opening scene shot of him in the pool. Yeah, when he is lashing out at her, he is really lashing out at himself. Mm. I th- and I yeah. think the reason I make that distinction is, once again, the film as we'll discuss, goes on to remain sympathetic to her and not to him. But yeah, now the house is filled with police and reporters. The gossip columnist... Uh, hit a hopper? Uh, I got new copy for you! Faded movie star shoots boyfriend in the swimming pool. I'm saying he's in the room with her. She's surrounded by police and reporters. Yeah, and, and she's like sort of like catatonic now and she she is she is sitting in front of her she's sitting in front of her mirror and she's she's doing her makeup and she's her arms are 
kind of like going around yeah. like like she's Anne Hathaway in uh, in uh, in Alice in Wonderland. Oh, uh, I'm not saying that. Oh, like in in Alice in Wonderland, uh, uh, Anne Hathaway spends uh, every single scene with her with her hands above her shoulders, and she's constantly she she just sort of, sort of, sort of like floats through a movie like this. Oh. Very bizarre. Good on her. It's, I mean, it's a choice. Yeah, no, you know? but like the thing I like about Anne Hathaway is she makes and commits to choices. Yeah, that sounds not like uh, I think. I mean, it's it's definitely not the worst performance of effort. I I I just think we as a society and as a discourse have a lot of apologising to do to Anne Hathaway because like Anne Hathaway's greatest crime was thinking marrying Bill Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> Great joke, you for. <laughs> Was we get it? Was that we get it? You know about plays. Was being like Anne Hathaway. She's got a real vibe of of thinking she's a good actress. Well, she is, but she shouldn't think that. <laughs> and it's like no, like she has fun. Yeah, she does the work. Like good on her. Sure. Sometimes she's in the hustle. Yeah, but like the hustle is not her fault. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. Chris Addison and Rebel Wilson's fault. But yeah, no, she is now. Absolutely disconnected from reality, doing her makeup. She's like surrounded by a semicircle of police officers, and they're all shouting different questions at her. Like, why did you kill him? Were you two lovers? Was it a quarrel? Did you ever want to kill him before? Did he want to kill you? Did you steal something from him? Did he steal something from you? Did you catch him stealing? She just can't say anything. And Max comes up and says the news cameras are here, and all she hears is that the cameras are here. Her and face kind of like lights up, and it seems like she's alive again. Yeah. And she turns around to Max, and Max is the the cameras are here. He goes down, and as her director sets up the shot, and she comes out, and she's like, I don't know what the scene is, uh, and this is the only way. The cop's like, we, we have to go through with this. This is the way we'll get her out of here. This is the way we'll talk to her. And he's like, oh, it's Salome is descending the staircase. And she goes, yes, yes. I I don't think I'm, I don't, I'm ready. And then rolling and, like, walking through waxworks, all the reporters, all the police are suddenly frozen. Yeah. She slinks down the staircase. Sunset Boulevard's cameras are slightly wider, so we see cameraman with lights flashing. So it is like behind-the-scenes footage. It's entrancing. And then when she gets to the bottom, she stops. And she says, oh, sorry, I'm just so... I can't. I need another go. I can't. I'm just so happy. So happy to be back here with all of you. And then she points at the camera down Sunset Boulevard's camera. There always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. Cameras and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And starts to walk towards the camera, and it gets more and more like Vaseline as she walks towards it. Blur feels like the entirety of your vision, and then it fades to black, and it's done. It's incredible. Yeah, I love Billy Wilder. This is my first time seeing Sunset Boulevard. It sort of like lived up to everything I wanted it to be, even though like I I. I like love the apartment, and I I know that like that's the sort of thing that he does. I was still like surprised at like the the, at the like emotional complexity of of yep. like all of these characters because it has become memes because it has become I'm ready for my close up, Mister Demel, yeah, uh, or or the body floating in the thing. You forget how much shade and detailing yeah. there is in it, and yeah, no, I I think it's great. I have one barrier with it, which is a taste issue, which is. I just have no interest in films about film, right? Because I think that it it is self indulgent stuff. That is, there are few films that better express both the pain and pleasure of cinema mm. than this film. Yeah, does an incredible job at that. And I kind of think 
that making a film about how film is good is kind of redundant. And it, it, it does kind of land in that, you know, writers writing about a writer not having an idea. Yeah. It is the joke of the Tenacious D, this is a pro-Tenacious D podcast, the Tenacious D song tribute. Mm. It's just like, right, you shouldn't write a song about the best song. Um, and it is those other levels of stuff. And like, I think the Enfant du Paradis version of this, where it is about like a stage star, that would be my note. But I'm also aware that it's a taste judgment. I right. Make. Yeah. And like that, that's just why I only think it's definitely a classic and a film that everyone should see as opposed to one of my favorite yeah. films. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, no, Gloria Swanson and Eric von Stroheim, both nominated for Oscars, neither one, uh, all four of the leads were, were nominated. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is out of shite and sound, I'm going to call it shite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's sound. It, it's sound. Fucking sound as hell. And I, I've, uh, with, with one exception, I've loved every Billy Wilder film I've seen so far. And we will get to that one. Yes. On this very podcast. Yeah, and uh, as I see more and more of his films... I I think he like is like he's definitely one one of my one of my favorite like screenwriters and and one of my favorite directors and I there is just so there is so much there, there, there is so much richness to every single thing uh, that that he does apart from Buddy Buddy. There is a picture in your brain of what a Billy Wilder film is. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is kind of a Preston Sturgis film, which is not a bad thing. But, like, there's something, like, you remember his jokes because his jokes are so good. Yeah. And, like, the like, fact that... Who, who, who could forget uh, some, like, some Like a Hot ends with, well, Poe Body's Nerfix. It's also just because I thought we'd talk about it a bit along the way, but we just never quite landed on it. This film also has a very distinct relationship with queer culture. Like, it's a big thing within that so much of that may be um because of gloria swanson's just yeah incredible performance and like the mimeticness of it but it is also there is something i think astoundingly queer about this film and that it is about a man um like a masculine force this man constantly fighting against the feminine or queering forces mm. around him and and like that causing destruction and seeing that the forces of good in this film are about people accepting complexity, the complexity of falsehood, of illusion. Romance is is something that is done in front of a street that is not a street where a man who is lying to the people who he's living with talks to a girl about how her nose is not her nose, you know? There are queerer things. I think there is an innate, readable queerness to it and that so much of like queer performance is about reclaiming the artificial as real and like that final moment her giving into her delusion when someone has finally broken her heart because he's a cunt not because she is is like an incredibly queer act i think so finn you'd say you'd like it i i did yes well i've got bad news for you because i have here the opinion of someone who did not like it oh no Letterboxd user Deepak Chazur um, wrote the following one-star review. For many reasons, Billy Wilder's film noir Sunset Boulevard, it's not really a film noir. No. Uh, it doesn't even look like a film noir. I guess someone dies in it and there's like sort of a mystery that's being uncovered. 
Like it, it, it is similar to something like Double Indemnity in the sense of like Double Indemnity is like all told in flashback by a man who is dying. On that subject, mm. Deepak continues, to begin with, the opening sequence gave way too much away. <laughs> a similar plot structure did work splendidly in Double Indemnity, but not this time, at least for me. Why? Simple. Because I found the central plot to be uninteresting, terribly dragging and predictable almost halfway through the film following which there aren't any thrilling, engaging plot twists, unlike in Double Indemnity, which made it all the more tasteless. If you can't predict this film until halfway through, I don't know what's wrong with you, because it tells it tells you in the opening scene, I'm dead. You can tell who killed him. Because of how films are in black and white, that doesn't mean it's noir. Yeah. For the first time, I'm disappointed by a Billy Wilder film. Might be like, yeah, and if you go into a film only expecting twists, for the first time, disappointed by a Billy Wilder film. Might be because I expected way too much from what I've heard of this film from many, and also the benchmark was quite high for me after the four of, of the films I've watched yet. A film noir devoid of thrills. That's because it's not a, a film noir. Now, uh, Deepak Chizhua, um has, looking at their ratings, pretty great taste uh and their top four i think three of which i i can understand being on someone's top four right. one of which is i'm gonna call the first or second most racist bond film uh doctor no no uh is, is it a is it a connery it is not uh, uh it's a more yeah uh i i have so little memory of what those okay so I, I, my question is who wrote in the world of yesterday who wrote the theme for this film? Oh, right. Uh, is it Live and, Live and Let Die? Yeah, the, it's, it's, very, it's very racist. Um, uh, it's a holiday film. Love Actually again? No. Die Hard? No. Holiday. The holiday film. Is it uh, The Holiday? No. Which holiday? The Witch Holiday. It's The Witch Holiday. You yeah, know, I hear the, the, the Halloween? Yep. Uh, the next one, ooh, it'll need a big mattress. There's a film about a giant pee. No, nah, it's noir. Oh, <laughs> it's a big sleep. <laughs> yeah. And the last one. Ah, uh, what's better than this? Just guys being dudes. Yeah. Uh, guys and dolls. No. Nah. Uh, some like it hot. <laughs> no, no, no. That would have been good. Okay, you're right. Um, uh, it is from is it eighty nine or ninety? Nineteen ninety. Um, and it's about uh, it's a family film. The family film about guys being dudes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Famous tennis scene. Tennis. Uh, a scene where they talk about comedy. I think it's very possible I haven't seen this film. You, uh, you, I know for a fact you have seen this film. Okay. Uh, who's in it? Um, it's just everyone is so obvious, so obvious, or just like Italian name. Is it a, is it an Italian film? No, no, it's not. No, it's not an Italian film. It's going to have a lot of Italian people or half Italian ones. Oh, oh, okay. It's it's a family film. Yeah, that's good film. Yeah, <laughs> man, just guys being dude. <laughs> this is obvious. The some clues that are only good in retrospect. You play it your way. I play it my <laughs> way. Show buddy, buddy. Billy Wilder's final film, nineteen eighty one, is a reteaming of of of. Uh, of Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau from The Odd Couple. Uh, J- Jack Lemmon was, of course, in in, uh, in 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 a few earlier 
Billy Wilder films. He was in The Apartment. He was in Irma Deuce. He was in Avanti. Yeah, Matthau has been in one other one at this mm. point, I believe. They've obviously been an odd couple and a couple of other things yeah. together. They're in the 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 front page together. That that they, 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 they were like a they were like a long time kind of duo. And yeah, so th- th- this this is like as as I said in the intro, this this is this is Billy Wilder trying to make a sort of like like. 70s and like come like a late 70s coming interview early 80s he's trying to do like a 40s style like a screwball comedy but he's also trying to make like an 80s sex comedy and he's also trying to make like a black comedy about a hitman there's like there's so much stuff going on in this movie he also wants to talk about suicide a lot this is an adaptation of a french film that was mm. quite old at this point yeah. which was an adaptation of a french, french play. play i have to because that the the log line we will not go through this plot in detail because no. it is not worth it and there's a lot of nonsense in it i just don't think there's much interesting to analyze or many good jokes to make about no, this there, there were some jokes a lot but i've forgotten most of them already this is a very forgettable film the log line is suicidal man gets a hotel room next to an assassin setting up to shoot a mob informant. Yeah. The assassin, Walter Matthau, uh, the film starts with introducing him with a, a quirky montage of him murdering people. Yeah. You see him first as a mailman. He, he puts a letter, he puts like a package in a guy's mailbox and, and walks away. And then the yep. guy opens the letter and it starts sparking and then it explodes. I mean, it turns out that guy was a was a uh, was going to inform on the mob in yeah. a major court case, and then the police are protecting another mob informant. He's like, "I'm just going to have some cereal," and it kills him. And then you get the incredible shot of a policeman holding a bottle of milk up to his nose and going, and "Cyanide." <laughs> then there's a cut to to Walter Matthau driving away in a in a milk truck. Jack Lemmon, her wife, has recently been taken from him by a sex therapist played by Klaus Kinski who is in no more than two days shooting of this film. I was so excited for Klaus Kinski to be in this film and I, I, I and you, you you made sure to like set my expectations <laughs> yeah. low because you said like this is a point in his career when he was just like doing as little work for as much money as he could. He turned down Raiders of the Lost Ark for this yeah. because he would work less days for more money and he is not even there's like, there is a scene in this in which Klaus Kinski is giving a lesson on erectile dysfunction to a room. You're like, that should be incredible. The yeah. man toured the world pretending to be Jesus and just yelling for two hours. They're like, no jokes. But like, jokes that are there aren't very good and he makes no effort to sell them. There's, yeah, there's a sequence where Jack Lemmon has to go into this sex psychotherapy clinic and the joke is just perpetually, people are talking about sex. And people are looking at scientific images of People of people's genitals, yeah, and 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 Jack Lemmon is just horrified by this. Genuinely contains a scene of him doing a double take at one of the tamer images in the Kama Sutra, in the sex bit of the Kama Sutra. I know the Kama Sutra covers many topics. I, I'm I'm like we, I, oh no, people are too reductive about yeah. it, and of course throughout. The the background is what I would call Indian style music to be like, oh, it's way out there. It's crazy. It is operating on a very long 60s idea of what hippies are. And this yeah. film's 1981. There was one joke about hippies. There were like two hippies who were driving along and their cars breaking down. And one of them is in is, is in labor. And some police officers like, hey, Walter Matthau, we, we got to put this lady in your car. You take her to the sex clinic so they can deliver the baby. And they take her there. The the baby's delivered, and then the the like the father of, of the child, like when he gets to see his 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 son for the first time. Oh wow, man! 
oh, that's totally heavy. Instead of handing out cigars, he hangs out joints, which yeah. is funny, yeah, that's pretty I funny. think, yeah. and is why I'm not allowed to hang around maternity wards anymore. But, but also, like he, he, he names his son, like, Elvis Jr.? Elvis Jr., because his name is Elvis. I think yeah. it is a joke. I think a lot of hippies would be called Elvis because of when they would have been born, which yeah. is at the height of Elvis's. Like Elvis Costello, the ultimate hippie. Ultimate has... The kind- final. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If all well, other if, hippies die, well, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it's like Clint Eastwood or something, someone who's went around just murdering hippies. You mentioned Clint Eastwood, and it was like on as, I'm, I, as I always do. Yeah, I know. You just love the mule. You're like, <laughs> yeah. I think more threesomes. <laughs> I think every film should include incredibly male gazy shots of women in bikinis, that, butts, and tits. That's <laughs> the funniest scene of any movie from 2019. Is that is that scene ever? At a, at a Mexican drug lord's house. At, at Andy Garcia, the Mexican drug lord's house. Just, just, just for anyone who hasn't seen The Mule, there, there's a bit in The Mule, after, after Clint Eastwood has had, I think, either his first or second threesome of the movie, he is in Mexico, uh, 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 he's getting a shipment of cocaine uh, from, the, from a drug lord, Andy Garcia, to, to, take, back to, uh, to take back to like Chicago or whatever. And, uh, and because it's Mexico... And uh, and Andy Garcia is a drug lord. There's constantly just parties going on at his house, where there's music and there's women in bikinis dancing around. There's this one shot which holds which holds on a close up of a woman's ass for so long that it starts to feel like a commentary on the male gaze, and, and then it holds on it for so much longer that it just becomes gross again. But then it also is it that shot or another shot where it is pointing at a posterior, pans, tilts up. And then is tilts back down again to be like, no, it's still yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know films about like the music industry that are made that were made in the like nineties and aughts by angry old men who had nothing to do and they would have fake music videos in them. They're like, Oh, they're all just about drugs and sex and look, they just stare at women. It is shot like one of those fake music videos. Yeah. And and there's also uh, there's a shot where uh, there is an incredible shot where Andy Garcia is dancing with a woman, and he's supposed to be, he's, like, he, he, they are both dancing, like, he's grinding on her, but, uh, one or both of them, uh, made the decision, uh, that, uh, they would, that there would be no less than, like, six inches of space between, <laughs> yeah. between them at any point. Which is, it's, uh, it's very funny. Uh, it, it, it's... There's also one incredible joke in The Mule. There's one great <laughs> editing gag. When he's decided that he's not going to do any more, de- he's yeah. not going to be a mule anymore. He's not going to drive in his truck full of drugs. And then someone's like, "Gotta save the old VFW hall." And then it cuts to Clint his face, and he's just like, mm. <laughs> "And then it cuts to him driving another truck full of cocaine." Yeah. <laughs> like just a, just a perfect joke. Uh, but uh, uh, IMDb trivia uh, for Buddy Buddy informs me that a couple of weeks into filming, Billy Wilder realized that Walter Matthau was the wrong casting for the hitman mm. and that it should be someone like, and it says Clint Eastwood. Right. And that like the game of this should be that it is like a manic suicidal man who is like flailing and battering up against an implacable object. Walter Matthau is kind of in many ways in this film, kind of the definition of implacable, even though at several points he puts on disguises, he's got a recurring <laughs> character as, as a priest, as an, as an Irish priest, which is like, like one of the good bits of Buddy Buddy, which is not so much damning it with faint praise, it's darning with all right okays, <laughs> you know? Kind of see that. The pitch of this 
like the reason I think this film doesn't work is that no one really cares. Mm. And, and the thing I was talking about, about Hawks and, and Wilder as a comparison is that like, yeah, to get like oddly specific, but like there's the sense of Hawks. Whenever you're looking at a set, everything is shot from roughly the same area. And that's because in those days, it's a fucking hour, two hours to move the cameras to yeah, get different yeah. angles. It's easier to shoot it all from one position. Wilder, leans in he he will fucking move cameras he will he will reposition things he'll reframe things they feel less stagey yeah. as opposed to theatrical and this is shot like a hawks film there are films for which that way of shooting things work uh, yeah. Matt, was and, i too mean about rio bravo no but he has good films yeah and and there are also scenes in in this film where, where that works like there, there is a scene they're both independently check into this hotel after having met at a gas station earlier and and jack lemon who's like you know he's always gotten he's always gotten upset stomach because he's got stomach ulcers because his wife left him yeah. and and walter Matthau just wants to be able to murder people and they they both independently check into the same hotel and uh jack lemon calls his wife uh, but she doesn't want to talk to him so he decides he'll kill himself yeah uh because uh, they, they, they were both reporters for CBS, and she was sent to uh, to uh, to check out uh, some new like a uh, uh, quack like a uh, 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 sexual wellness clinic, and she ends up uh, being like taken taken under under the spell of Klaus Kinski as this, as a sex therapist, and yeah, so now now he's going to kill himself because his wife left him, and uh, he tries to kill himself and it doesn't work, and blah blah blah, and he gets in this thing with Walter Matthau, and. At one point, Walter Malfoy gets so fed up with with Jack Lemon that he um he 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 asks Jack Lemon if he has a handkerchief. Jack Lemon pulls out a handkerchief, gives it to Walter Malfoy. Walter Malfoy stuffs it in Jack Lemon's mouth and puts him in a chokehold and just drags him through <laughs> and just drags him through a door into the other room. Yeah, and then it, like Walter Malfoy comes back and it cuts to Jack Lemon in the room. He's he's t- he's t- he's like he's like hog tied to a chair. He's got the he's 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 got the uh, he's got the handkerchief in his mouth and. There was a like two or three minute long, just like static shot of him tied to the chair, just just trying to like bounce this chair around to like different parts of the room so that he can like so he can like turn on the heater and put his and put like put his wrists on it so he can so he can burn the so he can burn the ropes off and like it, it's not it's not hilarious but like it's it's funnier than a lot of the other gags and it's it's all. Like it's it's all happening as like one set piece, yeah. and you can see it's actually Jack Lemmon doing it, and he's actually like doing doing all the stuff, and it's it's at least fun on on that level. I think this film on paper is about yeah, like let's say let's use Clint Eastwood as shorthand for like implacable assassin. Yeah. Um. He he just get he's implacable, but it's not fun. He just gets the job done. He just wants to buy his island and retire, which is mm. Walter Matthau's thing. Um. And he should be playing who is playing opposite like someone driven to madness um by 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 this breakup to grief and just this wholly uncontrollable uh uh tornado of upset like there's a real sense of jack lemon's character as like a cartoon character who is just like the moment you leave him alone in a room he's gonna start trying to commit suicide yeah and i don't think that is innately a bad idea yeah um the problem i think is that um Matthau and lemon are both very mellow performers yeah lemon is, is is like he's doing work but he is playing a jack lemon character which is to say slightly hard done by 
churning along guy who's having a bit of a sad time. Yeah, in 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 my head canon, this is a sequel to The Apartment, and yeah. it's Shirley MacLaine who left him. Um, and uh, and when it should be, it shouldn't be Jack Lemmon and Clint Eastwood. It should be like Eddie Murphy <laughs> and Clint Eastwood. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it, well, it, it was like forty eight hours. Yeah, it, yeah, but it needs to be. Someone who is is genuinely in a st- the the timeline of the film is very restricted and almost all the and like the script makes much more sense when it sense when it's about dealing someone dealing with absolute mania yeah like the resolution at the end of the film is that schmoo 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 plot 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 Klaus <laughs> thinks Walter Matthau is Jack Lemon and gives him an injection of the butt in the butt of 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 uh, 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 of, of Thorazine yeah. Uh, a relaxant, so it's like, oh, he can't now uh, shoot the ba- shoot shoot the mob informant. So Jack Lemon is like, I'll do it. I've got nothing to live for, uh, and, and then shoots him. And you're just like, no, Jack Lemon, you're just a gently sad guy. Like there is a sense that, like, if his wife came back to him, he'd be like, oh, I'm fine now. Yeah. Um. Whereas that need you need to build to this point of like, oh, this guy is so out of it that he, of course, he'll do that. You know. Yeah. And and and, and yeah, you got to do that by by doing like. He's like he's actually got nothing to live for, or to be like he's such a good friend to Walter Matthau, and that, it, that, 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 he'll, that he'll be like, oh yeah, I'll 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 shoot someone for you if you can't do it, and it, and it, and just none of those things land, mm. and I think it is that because because Matthau and Lemon obviously have a chemistry for fucking days, yeah, like that loaf is rising, you just don't buy it, yeah. like at any point, like. And the bits you do buy ends up being like, oh, this man is trying to kill himself. And so you get a scene of him trying to like hang himself in the bath. And you're like, this is just a quite sad scene. And then, you know, the pipe he's hanging himself from breaks and water goes everywhere. And you're like, oh, that was supposed to be a comic set piece. Then uh, after he hangs himself, uh, 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 we get a we get a incredible scene of Eddie the bellhop. You love Eddie. Oh, it is, so there's this a guy called Miles Shapin, who uh, may, maybe is related to the country artist Harry Shapin. Who can tell? Yeah, no, I have not. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm guessing that Miles Shapin was just like a stand-up who was kind of famous around this era, because he, he was in a few other movies, and uh, a couple of years after this, he was, in, he, was the lead of film, the, uh, uh, he was the lead of a film, The Funny Farm. Yeah. It was a film about stand-up comedy, uh, and... Yeah, he's just very irritating in all of his scenes, and he sucks. There's really not a lot to say about this movie. You get to hear uh, you get to hear Walter Matthau swear like a lot, which is which is fun at certain points. The thing I want to dwell on for a brief moment. No, like suicide is, and like I have skin in this game because I like I have written plays that that are about suicide mm. or, su- or suicide attempt, and, and so I have done a lot of the work of exploring how do you do that safely. Yeah. I don't think I don't think there's anything you can't write about, and I don't think there's anything you can't joke about. It's how you do those things. Yeah, which and, is something that like the the apartment does incredibly well. Like yeah. when the apartment stops for a bit being about workplace sexual harassment and becomes about suicide, it, it still manages to be like funny at points, but it's but it's also like it, it's also just like incredibly like tastefully handled. It's always empathetic to like to people who are going through like intense mental distress. Well, and. What apartment also understands if you are going to give suicide to your lead character, uh, even as an attempt, it cannot be noble or entertaining. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There, there are real moral questions about how to portray suicide uh, in things and, and whether uh, it should be at all. 
and, and I think the thing of like Lemon playing this as his Lemon self, mm. there and like Lemon is an innately relatable actor. Yeah, and like the and yeah, and he's great. But giving us a Lemon character who all he wants to do is kill himself and he doesn't care, but and he's not playing that far outside of himself. Um, is telling the people that like might validate feelings in its audience. So I don't like. This isn't just a bad film. I think it, there are some ways in which it's potentially dangerous. You just have to be more careful than this film is, um, which, which is not careful at all. It's a wacky stack of events. There was a period the, about the after the opening, after the opening about five minutes, the next about half hour is just them in their hotel rooms, which is obviously, yeah. I presume, adapted pretty straight from the play. Yeah. And I was like, I will kind of dig this if it doesn't leave these rooms, if it takes, and if it becomes like a, a closed door bedroom farce between someone trying to commit suicide and, and someone trying to commit a murder, trying to commit a murder. And, and it doesn't like, there are things there, but it is Billy Wilder said that if all of his films were in a room, he would greet all of them like old friends, except for buddy, buddy, um, which makes sense. Mm. Cause it doesn't like there's dialogue in it that feels like, a Billy Wilder film, yeah, like, like he 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 has like he he has like a co he 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 has like a co-writing screen uh, he has a co-writing credit on this. Yeah, he wrote it with I A L Diamond, right? Who, yes, yes, who also um, co-wrote the apartment and uh, like pretty much um, from Love in the Afternoon mm. on, possibly a couple before, like so through some like oh, they were the team yeah, together, yeah, um. And so, it, it, like, there is, yeah, they wrote 12 films together. And it and so, like, you just get the sense of, like, they're trying to make a film. Like, ah, oh, comedy about suicide. That's what people make in 1981, you know? Mm. But it just it does not land. Yeah. And, it, and, and, it, and, and it feels insincere. And even when people are doing Billy Wilder patter, you don't feel it. It doesn't flow. Yeah, like, there is a thing that I think the movie is going for, throughout for, for, for a lot of it, where, where you have... We, we we have Jack Lemmon who is doing the, the sort of thing that Jack Lemmon did from this like late sixties on, where yeah. he was like, uh, where he was doing like more dramatic stuff, and he's like, I'm like a sad middle aged guy. He's doing this like new Hollywood. Oh, I'm a sad guy. I don't know what to do. Whereas like Walter Matthau is is playing more. He's playing more like a noir character. He's doing like he's like a gruff forties guy. He's always yeah. he's always wearing like a suit and a hat, and he and he like yeah, and he and he only kind of he mostly only talks in like cliches and violence. Yeah. And that's also a, a good idea. You have these kind of like two different, like but like equally dysfunctional modes of masculinity as expressed through cinema in different time periods, kind of like clashing. Yeah. But it's, it's it's just it's just not there on any sort of like thematic level. I think the central comic, like the clear comic highlight, is supposed to be like he's at the sex place and it's funny, and it is just it just feels woefully sex negative in a way that I think would have rung false at the time. And I think if there was a central comic set piece that was actually funny, um, I think that would do a lot for this film. Yeah, apart from the joke where the, where the hippie hands out joints after his son's born. Like, there, there are, like, no good jokes at the sex clinic? No, no, no. Yeah. Well, no, and, and, and it, it is because we have grown up in a world where it is not funny by default just to say sex. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that is what this film is doing. And I don't think it was that time... This film failed. It ended Billy Wilder's career. Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau did not work again for like 15 years until Grumpy Old Men. 
it sucks to see them go out this way. And like, it kind of, it makes me understand why, like there are potentially, there are possibly greater pains for Norma Desmond. Cause at least she went out with people loving her mm. and, and her work being good. And, or at least seems that way. Yeah. Where, cause the alternative is her, what if her desperate attempts at relevancy came true and you'd get something as bleak as buddy, buddy. Yeah. Um, so don't watch it. I'm saying shite. Shite is what I'm saying. Uh, I am. I am also saying shite. Yeah. It, and yeah, don't kill yourself. No. Hey, Yufa. Yeah. Would you like to hear a five star review of Buddy Buddy? Like, I do need to prepare myself. This is from Letterbox user Lars Peterson. Two brilliant comedians in excellent form, a memorable musical theme, an always reliable director. And Klaus Kinski as the sexually liberated Wilhelm Reich-inspired Dr. Zuckerbrot. Buddy Buddy can't fail, and it doesn't. I could watch this one over and over. When we were watching the film, uh, something that I'd been thinking and you uh, said early on is uh, the, 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 the fucking score. Uh, the, the, the score to this film is terrible. It feels like, like a, the, the theme to like a particularly like, like low-rent 1960s TV spy show. It feels like it, it, it's both dated now but it also seems like it's dated at the time yeah tv score is a great way to put it because there's a sense of like there are just whole kind of slightly unaffected sequences where there are no dialogue where which it's just slathered all over and like music heavy films can be great yeah but there's just the sense of like billy wilder and a lazy boy in a mix going Waving his hand like, yeah, yeah, there's music here, I guess. There's a repeated sequence of Walter Matthau assembling the sniper rifle. Yeah. Um, where you're like, oh, this could be funny. Does he start assembling it wrong? No, not really. No, he, he just assembles the rifle correctly every time and then has to then has to disassemble it because he hears a noise. That is funny if there's tense music over it, not like spy action. It's not great. No. And, um, and and like... It's not, no, it's not even good. Yeah, and Klaus Kinski is... Incredible in other stuff, in some other stuff. Yeah, but this is his phoning it in phase. Yeah, yeah, he 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 is doing he is doing nothing with this. So uh, you have to guess what uh, Lars Peterson's uh, top four in Letterboxd are. I mean, it's a fun game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. First up, we've got uh, uh, we've got another Lemon Mathau joint. Ah, uh, Odd Couple. Yeah. Uh, then we have uh, another Wilder Sunset Boulevard. This is uh, 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 this, this is a this is a fifties film. Is it? Witness for the Persecution. Uh, no, it is not. Uh, it is a romance and a comedy. Ah, is it Some Like a Hot? No. Is it? But it, it but it does have, it, it, it's his other Marilyn Monroe film. Ah, uh, which is? When do you get uncomfortable in a relationship? When I get uncomfortable in relationships, when they keep asking me to damn commit. Uh, it's the seven year it's itch. It's the seven year yeah. itch. What a uh, film. Have you seen that? Uh, I have not. Oh. Like I think I'm gonna try and do all, all the like major Marilyn Monroe movies this year because I've, I've never seen any of them. I I oh yeah, like the you've seen some like it hot. I, I've I've seen most of some like it hot. Monroe is a person who is obviously iconic and is now kind of distorted by all the stories around her. Yeah, and you forget that like she's just a fucking incredible movie star. Uh, then we have uh, another movie on this list. Uh, it's a Bergman. Steven Seal? No. Persona? No. Wild Strawberries? Yes. Uh, and then we have uh, another film on this list. Uh, okay. Uh, it's, Vertigo. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I was going to say it's based on your favorite song. Right? <laughs> okay. Uh, my, it's, it's, it's an adaptation of your favorite song. Can I, can I, can I just say my gag was going to be trying to re- go down the whole <laughs> list in order from memory? Well, you picked the right one to start with. Oh, uh, hello, hello. It is a place called Vertigo. Yep. So where can people find you online, Finn? You know what? <laughs> uh, who cares? <laughs> uh, your catchphrase. You can find my show on Twitter at ShiteSoundPod, or you can email us at shitesoundpod at gmail.com. Check out our website. It's at shiteandsound.com. If you want to know where I am, why not follow me on all your various social medias? I'm Youthalives, U-T-H-E-R-L-I-V-E-S, and sign up for my newsletter, which is at bit.ly slash youthalives. If you like the show, uh, share and enjoy. Uh, yeah, tell t- your t- friends. T- tell, tell, tell people about it. Th- this one might be a good one to start with. It doesn't have you for doing like a twenty-minute bit at the beginning. <laughs> oh, thank Which, you. No, like those are funny. I think you have to. Uh, uh, you have to. Uh, you have to. I think you have to like both of us before before you can fully enjoy. I, th- both. I think you're right. Yeah. Maybe we should rearrange the order of the show. Fuck you. A <laughs> theme song is the Nux by Kazan Blam. Checking out on Bandcamp. What are we watching next week, Finn? So next week we are watching a silent film. Ooh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Time. It's a film about the depression, about industrialization, about uh, being stuck in a clock, I think. Uh, no. That? But, <laughs> oh, you haven't seen it. Will this be yeah. your... Have you seen much Chaplin? No. no. Oh, I wow. Think, I think this will be my, my, my first full Chaplin. I, l- I look forward to seeing uh, Chaplin. With yeah. you. And with that, we're watching uh, another film about the depression. We are watching uh, the Abigail Breslin vehicle based on a series of toys, uh, Kit Kittredge. An American Girl. That's right, it's based on the American Girl doll series. But more importantly, it's also set during the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> this, um, is a, uh, this is the first American Girl movie to be theatrically released. Yeah, <laughs> of the, the four. Yep. Uh, uh, we might have a guest. We might have a guest. Forward to that. And uh, that's everything, right? Yeah. No, it's not everything. But, like, most importantly, every time I'm, like... There's always like five to ten years between times I've seen Sunset Boulevard, and each time I'm like, "Why don't I watch this every year? Yeah, why isn't it like Speed Racer? You know, uh, almost. Yeah, why isn't there a National Sunset Boulevard Day? <laughs> yeah, it's, hey, we're like two months off National Speed Racer Day, three months I think. Right. So just everyone get remember have your blues ready, but like check. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, um, and, and just unfortunately, it's bad. But movies are good, even. Buddy, buddy. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> Movies are good. Even bad ones. Go, Go watch, watch them. I don't know. All I know uh, is that it's the best place to have romantic montages. The only film I've ever seen is Promising Young Woman. Um, I'm going to cut that. That seems cruel. We don't need more Promising Young Woman discourse, though. If it wins an Oscar, I'm going to shit myself. It'll be very humiliating. Yeah.
Is this, I mean, is this like, is this something you've like planned or? <laughs> no, I just think inevitably in my life, like between now and death, I'll get myself at least one. And then when it happens, you'll say, curse you promising young woman's <laughs> Oscar. 